standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 8. We come to the conclusion of chapter 8, verses 34 through 38 this morning. Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. And he, that is Jesus, came uh, and called the people to himself with his disciples also. He said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. We know that the original writings of Scripture did not have verse and chapter divisions. Uh, those were added later as a convenience, and some uh, think that that was unnecessary or unhelpful. I think it's very helpful, as long as we keep in mind that we look before and after and don't just try to isolate uh, various texts of Scripture. But I also think there's a lo- whole lot more to the chapter divisions than we often give credit for. They were not just arbitrarily done. And so what I've been doing as we have gone through the Gospel of Mark, now coming to the conclusion of chapter 8, is I have offered a a summary theme, chapter by chapter, of Mark's Gospel. And here in chapter 8, the theme is the Gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world. You've heard me say that a lot. And of course, when we talk about the Gospel paradox, remember that a paradox is a seeming contradiction. It's not a contradiction when when it's looked at more carefully, but it looks initially to be a a, a contradiction. And so the gospel seems like a contradiction to the world. And there are many examples of contradictions, some of them from various disciplines, some of them intended to be funny uh, in a sort of a a turn or a, a phrase. But I think the ultimate paradox is the one that Jesus gives as he identifies for us the gospel paradox that whoever would save his life will lose it. Anybody who thinks they can save themselves by their own way, whoever thinks they can save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake and the gospel will save it. Now that is the ultimate paradox. It's not a contradiction, but beloved to the flesh, it cannot be understood. It must be by faith, saving faith. And so, as we've looked at the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world in chapter 8, let me just remind you, I want to keep it, uh, the flow together. Verses 1 through 10, Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 4,000 plus people in Gentile territory further demonstrates God's providence integral to the salvation of the world. You see, the seeming contradiction here is that the world does not appear to be saved. As you look around, are you impressed? Are you saying, wow, look at God, how God is saving the world. Look at how Jesus is saving the world. Beloved, with our eyes of our flesh, we don't see that. Sometimes with our faith, we struggle over that. Some have given themselves to complete theological uh, systems that try to answer that paradox by saying, well, Jesus is not saving the world at all. 
But that's not what Scripture says. We're called to faith, and we're called to believe, not with the eyes of faith, but in the paradox of the gospel, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. <clears throat> Verses 11 through 26. Jesus healing a blind man in two stages provides another gospel object lesson about the need to understand the progressive revelation of Scripture in order to avoid the spread of false teaching and corrupting influences uh, that spread like yeast or leaven. And the example that Jesus gives is the Pharisees' teaching and Herod's club. He says those are poisonous influences. Those are spreading influences. They will corrupt your understanding of the gospel. You must rather give yourselves to the progressive whole counsel of the word of God. And the seeming contradiction here is that there are many false teachings about who Jesus is. Everyone says they have a view and an idea about who Jesus is. Many that call themselves churches claim to have a teaching about Jesus, but it is a false teaching. And that's why we must embrace the gospel paradox that it's not what anybody says about Jesus. It's the progressive revelation of Scripture that identifies for us that Jesus is the Christ of God. And we need the counsel of Scripture to identify that. You can't believe anything you want to about Jesus. You want to believe Jesus was a prophet? He was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. You want to believe that Jesus was a good man? He, he was a good man, but he was more than a good man. You want to believe that Jesus is an angel? Well, Jesus is the messenger of the covenant, but he is not a spirit being. He's, he is the God-man, the uncreated second person of the Holy Trinity, God, in union with the, in, the uh, human uh, identity, the human being of Jesus, he is the one, only, and unique God-man. You cannot believe anything you want to about Jesus. But what is progressively revealed to us in Scripture, how he is the Lamb of God, how he is the surfing servant of Isaiah, how he is the anointed one, the Messiah, how he is prophet, priest, and king. All of this that comes to us from the progressive revelation of Scripture, it's not a contradiction. It is a paradox to the world. But it's fully satisfied to us who believe as we see unfolded and revealed to us the wonder of Jesus the Christ. Going on in verses 27 through 23, Jesus commending Peter's Christocentric confession. You are the uh, Christ, the Son of God. Jesus commends Peter's Christocentric confession, but then he consequently rebukes Peter's confusion from satanic influence. And this establishes for us the gospel hermeneutic. What do we mean by that? The interpretive method that predictive prophecy terminates in Christ's new covenant fulfillment. You want to know what prophecy means? Then you need to look how it's fulfilled in Christ. Don't listen to people that are telling you that this event, this week, last week, next week, is the fulfillment of prophecy. Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. There is more to come. Christ is coming again. That's how he ends this part of the chapter, the end of the chapter in, uh, in Mark. So yes, there is more to come. But beloved, you want to understand prophecy? Then you find its fulfillment. You find its focus. You find its goal. You find its meaning in who Jesus is as the Christ of God. That's where our focus needs to be. The seeming contradiction is that the gospel appears to be a failure of weakness and defeat to the human desire for godlike power and control. We, we struggle with that. We look around us 
And we say, I don't understand. The gospel doesn't seem to be effectual. Uh, why are people not believing? Why are they not coming to Christ? Why are they? You don't know what God is doing and who is coming to Christ and where, here or there. There is a great revival or movement of the Spirit of God or true salvation. We, we don't know. We must not limit God by our own limitations. I've used the example before out of the Psalms of, of someone standing up on a stepladder at the beach, looking out across the horizon and saying, Yep, I knew it. The earth is flat. You think you can judge God's movement and God's work the same way? You think you can stand up on the step stool of your experience, of your view of the world, and you can make a declaration that the world is not being saved? That's why we're called to faith and to understand what seems to be a contradiction. That the gospel doesn't appear to be saving the world. It appears to be a failure of weakness and defeat because we're expecting and have a desire for godlike power and control. That's where the real fight comes in our own soul, in our own mind. And that's why I'm telling you, we must embrace the gospel revelation from Scripture telling us who Jesus is, the good news of who Jesus is by faith. And so I ask you this morning, do you comprehend? Do you understand? Do you get it? The gospel paradox. Jesus gave it to us in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Can Jesus say it more plainly? And do we understand that that's how we must embrace the gospel. When Jesus asked the disciples and us who the world says he is, and then again, who we say he is, straight talk about Jesus Christ has reached its climax. There's more to come. I can't wait to get to chapter 9. <laughs> you may say, well, man, if, if chapter 8 and, and Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ is the climax, what are you going to do with chapter 9? It's pretty exciting, isn't it? But... Talking about who Jesus is, straightforward from what Scripture says. The solution to the gospel paradox is scripturally revealed to be the content of the faith. That is, what must be believed. We must believe what Scripture says about Jesus. We must believe about His uh, incarnation, His being sinless, His dual uh, 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 nature as being one person with uh, the divine and the human in that great mystery and wonder of the incarnation that he lived a sinless life but in the effects of the fall upon our flesh. And he never sinned. And so he's our sin substitute. And therefore, he did go to the cross. He was rejected. He was murdered torturously and buried dead. And he rose again miraculously. And our understanding of the gospel paradox is built upon the content of that fact, those facts of the faith. And so the means of resolve is saving faith. Do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe? The act of believing in terms of these facts of the faith of the gospel is saving faith. And so that brings us to make this next application. 
The gospel paradox is also a personal paradox of saving faith. And that's where we're at this morning. Have you, by saving faith, embraced that gospel paradox so it doesn't confuse you and you know what it means to lose your life for Jesus' sake in the gospel? Have you embraced the gospel paradox as personal saving faith that, no, I'm not confused about it. I understand. These are the facts that I believe and understand. There are many things I don't understand. I I may not be able to elaborate on a lot of this. Even Peter got confused in this very context. But the gospel paradox is also a personal paradox of saving faith. So we turn this morning to the conclusion, verses 34 through 38. Predictive prophecy, like all Scripture, is not for private, presumptive, make up your own meaning. Last week we looked at how Peter went astray doing that, and Jesus rebuked him, said he was under the influence of the devil, desiring the things of man, not the things of God. He didn't say that Peter was possessed. He was saying to Peter, you know, you need to learn. You need to uh, connect the dots in terms of the confession that you made that I am the Christ. And then he went on and told his disciples, don't be telling anybody about this yet. You're not prepared. You're not ready yet to be telling others about this. And so the reason that Jesus rebuked Peter openly, even though Peter had taken him aside privately, is because the gospel is not for private interpretation. You cannot make up your own meaning about the gospel. Well, this is what the gospel is to me. You can go to the grocery store and you can find on racks of books there all kinds of titles about what the gospel means to me. This is the herb grower's gospel. This is the deer hunter's gospel. This is the uh, golfer's gospel. Well, that's not the gospel. That's an adulterating. That's a corrupting. Everybody does not have their own, make up your own meaning, fill in the blank. The gospel is to me blank. The gospel is what God says the gospel is in Scripture. And Jesus identified it for us in terms of the content of the faith. What you must believe to be saved. And you may say, well, pastor, we believe, we hear this all the time. We're, we're, we're good on that. We're good. No, we're not good. We need to be reminded week in and week out. We must never give way. We must always be contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saint. You can't get it enough. And that's why we go through the exposition of Scripture. I don't have to come up with some kind of new wowzer. You know, what's the, what's the um, flavor of the day? Pastor, how are you going to entertain us today? I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to call you to faith week in and week out, day in and day out. I'm here to tell you, don't turn away from the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Don't listen to the false voices in the world. I know that you have your devices on almost 24-7. You're plugged in. And you're hearing all manner of voices through all means, whether it's entertainment or supposed news or debates or current events, or whatever it might be. So I know one thing. I know you're hearing the world a whole lot more than you're hearing me. But I do believe that the voice of God in Scripture and the witness of the Holy Spirit is greater than the world, and I believe that you're hearing the witness and conviction of the Holy Spirit as a child of God. And you need to hear what I am preaching to you, not from my own opinion, but what the expounding of the Word of God is. And so... Christ's new covenant fulfillment is what Jesus tells us about in the conclusion here. Promised gospel consummation to the glory of God. That's what I want you to keep your eyes of faith on as well. 
It's connected to the gospel. The consummation that is promised to the glory of God. Do you know, do you grasp and understand how the gospel, what Jesus said about his being rejected and his being torturously put to death as a criminal, his being murdered and uh, slandered, and his being buried and raising again from the dead the third day. Do you understand how that is God's work to glorify himself? It's not the end of the story. That's why we need the progressive revelation of scripture. It tells us, no, this is not the end. But from that, comes the promised gospel consummation. In verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Here in verse 34, Jesus makes the gospel paradox a public message, generally calling all kinds of people to follow him. This is where I have the commission from Jesus' example and from the great commission that he has authorized, I have the warrant to preach the gospel paradox to all the world, to give the general call. It's not for me. I don't have some special set of glasses that I can look out and I can see a little E over people's heads. Oh, elect, elect, elect. I never worry about that. I find great consolation. And that God has an elect and he has promised that he will effectually use his means in preaching the gospel that he's called me to do to bring the sheep into the fold. I was prayed this morning. The sheep need the shepherd. The sheep need to be in the fold of Christ. By faith, I believe that Jesus is saving the world. And I am commissioned to preach openly the call to repentance and faith. The faithful preaching of the gospel must admonish. That's a good word that we don't hear very much, but the word admonish means to urge by warning. And this is conveyed to us oftentimes in the grammar of the Greek text. To urge by warning to the way of the cross, which is the heart of the gospel paradox. Please don't overlook that. We hear what Jesus is saying this morning. And he's telling us that the way of the cross is the heart of the gospel paradox. So look at the second part of verse 34 down through verse 35. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's We'll save it. So Jesus applies the gospel paradox to the way of the cross in terms of saving or losing one's life on account of what someone believes about who Jesus is. That's how serious this is, beloved. Jesus applies this gospel paradox, what seems to be a contradiction to the world. He applies it to the way of the cross. That not only seems to be a contradiction, it is an offense. We recoil against it in our own flesh. But he tells us saving or losing one's life comes down to what someone believes about who Jesus is. The desire for Christian discipleship is not a momentary or passing fad. It's not a short-lived enthusiasm. But it's an ongoing faith commitment. 
The grammar of the text here means a continuing, ongoing. Whoever desires to come after me, whoever desires to follow me, continuing, ongoing, not a passing fancy, not a momentary stir of emotionalism, not to become enthusiastic in a time of need or distress and then short-lived, walk away from it and say, now I've got my life under control, now I can go on back to what I was doing. No, Jesus' call to discipleship is a lifelong call. It's not a passing fad. It's a continuing seeking and following and and continuing with Him. The second part of verse 34, the gospel paradox becomes a personal paradox when saving faith demonstrates gospel power. Saving faith, beloved, the work of God, the the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God, saving faith demonstrates the power of the gospel and the urgency of unselfing look at the second part of verse 34 whoever desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me this is what Jesus says is a supernatural work this is something you can't do to yourself it's something that God must do God must change you from within he changes you from within and demonstrates the power of his gospel by the urgency of unselfing. Do you feel that? Do you experience that? Do you identify with what Jesus said about denying yourself? Can you testify to that? Yes, by the power of the Spirit of God, the power of the gospel working in me, the good news that came that's un- is contradictory to the world. My, even friends and maybe family members don't understand it. But beloved, I can say yes, I know what it is to be unselfed. One of my favorite authors and the one that I think writes the most profoundly about this unselfing is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis didn't claim to be a theologian. He didn't enter into a lot of of, uh, discreet theological debate, but he was a faithful witness to Scripture. And I believe he had one of the most uh, profound insights to the Christian anthropology of who we are in Christ, made anew. And he constantly dealt with this unselfing. And being made anew, a new creation in Christ. Being reselfed, identifying with Christ. I don't know how better to explain it. And here the grammar of the text speaks to this. Let him deny himself with urgency. It's in the imperative mood. It's often suggested as command. And I think there's command here by the authority of Christ. But there's more than command. There's an urgency about it. This is not a secondary thing. This is not something you can kind of think about and decide. Well... You know, I don't know, I'll I'll maybe go a little way with that. I think I'll have kind of a a, a half dose of unselfing. No! (laughs) There is no such thing. You're either in yourself, or you have been unselfed by Christ. You have died to self. You have crucified the flesh. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this very claim. And you can see he goes on in verse 35 to state it very plainly. Verse 35 For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Please pay attention to that. The gospel paradox becomes a personal paradox when saving faith demands a shocking identification with Jesus' death. Look at what he said here. Again, using the imperative move of urgency and command, take up his cross. He's saying this is absolutely demanded. 
You don't get a voice in it. You don't get a vote. You don't get a, a, a question mark about, well, am I ready to do that? I don't know if I'm quite ready to do that. No, this is a demand. It's a shocking demand of how we identify with Christ's death. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. People all around us are trying to save their life by any means. Interestingly enough, Scripture tells us about that. The wisdom literature uh, goes into it. Jesus reflects on it and warns about it. The Apostle Paul and the other writers of Scripture elaborate on it, how people desire to save their life, and they think they can save their life by finding themselves. What does the world tell you? Oh, go find yourself! Maybe you'll find yourself in pleasure. Maybe you'll find yourself in a purposed work. Maybe you'll find yourself in doing for others charity. Someone with authority whom I know said, what profit is is it to you if you give your body to be burned? But you've never embraced what the love of Christ is in identification with Him. And that's what Jesus is saying that this is a demand. It's a shocking demand. Take up his cross. I mean, you know the cross at that time was well known of a Roman instrument of torture and criminal death. Criminals were put to death by crucifixion. And I'm sure you've heard, as I have, elaborations on just how grim and how uh, torturous. I don't even know that we can enter into a real grasp of that. I know it's attempted to be depicted in uh, film and so forth, but it's far more than just the external physical sufferings that are going on here. And what Jesus says about taking up your cross is what further in Scripture is told to us about dying to self and crucifying the flesh. The old term was the mortification of sin, putting sin to death in your mortal body, resisting temptation. Dying to self because you have been unselfed and, and you are identifying with Christ. That's the only power that will affect this. This is how the Apostle Paul wrote about it. I think he elaborates for us what Jesus is saying here in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul is saying here, this is how we are unselfed and this is how the shocking identification with Christ is taking up the cross. And it is described as being crucified with Christ. And beloved, that's not described without pain. Dying to self, struggling with sin and temptation, being remade and identifying with Christ is painful. It is spiritually painful. It affects our emotions. It affects our soul. It affects our consciousness. It affects our mind and intellect. It affects our body. Now you cannot add to and try to generate those effects yourself. Many people have tried. There are many who go off base on this and say, well... I'm going to punish my body. The flesh is my body. And so I'm going to do things to uh, deprecate my body. And throughout the course of history, many have described that in various ways of trying to actually torture their body. Some have tried 
through uh, various means to, to have mysterious wounds that appear after Jesus. That's the deception of the devil. Your body is not evil. Your body is not what Scripture is talking about when it talks about the flesh. Your disposition in unregenerated, unregenerated uh, warring and um, rebellion against God, that's the seed of the flesh. But you see, the power of Christ to defeat the flesh and to recreate with a, a heart of, of um, devotion to Christ, that's a new and transformed identity. And so your body's not evil, but your body must be brought under control, the control of the Spirit. It begins with your mind and your attitude. And that's why I'm saying it can be very painful Many people suffered serious and debilitating mentally challenged issues about guilt, for example. But our guilt is resolved in faith in Christ. And that's why when we talk about humanistic psychology, my, my point, you've heard me say it many times, is that humanistic psychology, psychology can identify patterns of problems, patterns of pain, patterns of of debilitation, patterns that are unhealthy. But humanistic psychology doesn't have an answer for it. Let's dope someone up. Let's try to, to um, dull their mind against these things. Let's try any number of experimental things. That's not the answer. The answer is to die to self and to have the power of Christ to change you, identifying with taking up the cross. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 6, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's painful. In many and various ways, being crucified to the world is painful. And we struggle against it. We don't want to be crucified. And so it becomes a real challenge that can only, by the grace of God and the, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, re-imaging us in Christ, unselfing of ourselves and, and uh, giving us a new person and identity built up in the faith, uh, regenerated, made new. All of that scriptural description to us about what it is to identify with Christ and to be a new creation in Christ goes into this in terms of how saving faith, a contradiction to the world of dying to self and, and living to God, is embraced by faith with understanding. If you have exercised and know saving faith, if you testify in the Spirit and you confess in terms of knowing that Jesus has forgiven your sins, that you have been unselfed and that you have been re-identified in Christ, then you know what this means, whether you can fully explain it or not. It's a matter of saving faith. In verses 36 through 37, Jesus makes it clear that the gospel paradox is about a person's immortal soul now and beyond this world. A world with different values. Look how Jesus is elaborating this for, for us in verse 36. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
So Jesus illustrates the idea of savings one, one's life. What did it mean when Jesus said, if you save your life, you will lose it. If you desire to save your life. Well, he's saying this is the way the world goes about trying to save their life. It's a false security of unlimited material profits. If you could gain the whole world. He uses an exaggeration here. You can't get gain and control the whole world. You don't have the, the wealth of the whole world. If you believe the lie of the devil, you think you do, but you don't. And so Jesus says, if you could gain the unlimited material profits of the whole world, you still could not buy off death. That's one of the most profound and soul-leveraging observations that's repeated in Old Testament wisdom writings. If you should gain the whole world, if you're the richest man in the world, you have no control over what happens to your wealth after you die. Some have tried. They've tried to have airtight uh, wills and, and testaments and legal documents. But you have no control if you should gain the whole world and all its wealth. The richest person in the world. You cannot buy off death. That's the point that Jesus is making. He goes on in verse 37, Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So Jesus presses the human conscience with a rhetorical question about an ultimate exchange. It is the ultimate exchange. What is your soul worth? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Oh, this is ripe throughout literature. Uh, throughout literature and various arts. You know, the um, contract with the devil. From high opera to crossroads blues, there are stories about those who made a pact with the devil. From romanticized literature, the Faust's theme, this is a consciousness that is well represented in the human uh, soul. You know what I like to call it? A haunting psychological bomb. What is your soul worth? I've told you recently, you cannot unhear a rhetorical question. I kind of liken a rhetorical question to a speed limit sign. A speed limit, you, you can't unsee the speed limit sign. Now, you may not see it sometimes, but when you see it, and I'll tell you another thing, if you get a ticket, you know wherever you got that ticket, when you drive by there again, guess what you do? How fast am I going? You cannot unhear a rhetorical question. What will you give in exchange for your soul? What is your eternal soul worth? You see, that, that's where I feel confident in preaching the gospel because I know that's a psychological bomb that haunts everyone who hears it. I may deal with it differently, but I know this. It cannot be unheard. So what is your soul worth? As Jesus asks. You can see in verse 38 the conclusion here. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's what we're talking about in terms of gospel consummation. The promised gospel consummation. Jesus' warning is for everyone because every generation from this sin-fallen world will be judged by the same standard, the moral law of God. 
And at the gospel consummation, when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns as the glorified Son of God, it will be that great day. What is that great day? You've heard it before throughout Scripture. The day of the Lord, the dreaded day of the Lord, the great day, the day of judgment. I'm told that that's not popular. I'm told that that's going to turn people off. I'm told that that's not going to endear people and win them to the gospel. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus said, this is the the heart of the gospel because it's what you're being saved from. Eternal judgment. I have to preach it. I'm not left to myself. I can't give private interpretations. I can't just preach the things that I really like. I have to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus links a person's life or soul now with the life or soul beyond this world based on one's disposition toward Jesus and His gospel. Are you ashamed of Jesus and His gospel or not? Are you ashamed? Do you find Jesus' gospel disgraceful? Now, this Jesus talking about being ashamed here is not to be confused with shyness or being timid. That's not what he's talking about. This is a a very heavy word that Jesus uses. It has to do with embarrassment. People who are embarrassed about Jesus and the gospel or try to turn it into a joke or a laughing stock or mockery or ridicule are contemptuous and dismissive as worthless. That's not only in the world. Do you know that that is in the broader claims of those who say they're in the church? There are those who say, away with this blood and guts story about Jesus. There are those who charge God and say, God is cruel. If you believe in that story, if you believe that to be true, then God's just a monster. He's a bloody monster. There are people who talk that way. Not just now, not just in our days, in past days. So this is something that's not new and Jesus addresses and tells us that we are not to be ashamed. We are not to ridicule. We are not to count worthless the disturbing story of Jesus and the cross. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. We're not to write that off. We're not to make a mockery of that. We're not to dismiss it and say, oh, it offends people. And so we better not talk about it. It's just too gross. If we do that, Jesus says, he will be ashamed of all who are ashamed of him. All who ridicule, who are contemptuous, and who count Jesus and the gospel as worthless. He says, that will come back on you at the day of judgment. And you can see Jesus' twofold indictment here of an adulterous and sinful generation. This is a summary judgment of the first and second tables of the moral law of God. Adulterous, in this instance, applies to the first table of the law. Unfaithfulness to God. God in Scripture reveals Himself in terms of a covenant relationship. He even uses the uh, Scriptures, uh, in the Scriptures, an example through the prophets of being like a husband. And He uses that over and over. Uh, It it is exalted to Christ as being the head and husband of the church. He is the bridegroom of the church, his bride. And it is beautified in Scripture, in the promise of the Old Testament, and in the beautiful descriptions of the book of Revelation. 
the bride, the Lamb's wife. And so when Jesus says here that every generation will stand in judgment of the moral law of God because God does not change in His holy character from generation to generation. And therefore, an adulterous generation are those who are unfaithful to worship and confess and restrict their um, acknowledgement and their uh, Testimony of who God is. It's a powerful indictment that Jesus uses here. We often lose sight of the first table of the law. Where we get so wrapped up in the second table of the law and the, the uh, relationship from uh, person to person. But the first table of the law comes first. And Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And so Jesus here indicts the following generations, generation upon generation, from the standard of God's moral law on the first table, that if you are not faithful to God as the only true living God, worship and confess Him as such, then you are unfaithful and adulterous. It's powerful. It's unsettling. We don't like it. Because it talks to us about how powerful God is and how exclusive God is. He will not be represented by any human fashion of created things. No matter if we make the most beautiful statue that can be imagined in human skill, God says it's an abomination because I cannot be fashioned after human imagination or skills. Make no image of me. Jesus, or, or, or um, Jesus, but throughout Scripture, we're told that God's name is holy. God's name is not to be taken in vain. That doesn't mean just cursing. It means God's name is not to be treated worthless. You're not to apply God's name to idols. You're not to apply God's name vainly or empty, in an empty way to your own oaths. You're not to put up a sticker on your refrigerator of a vacation home or a motor home or uh, the jackpot ticket of the lottery and pray to it with the idea that, oh, I would honor your name, God. So I'm praying to this thing that I want and I'm trying to justify that by praying over, over it in God's name. It's a blasphemy. And so you see, adulterous generation is as Jesus' indictment against the breaking of the first table of the law in being unfaithful to who God is. It's not, a, it's not okay to say, oh, it's the same God by a different name. No, it's a false God, and it's a pagan God, and it's a blasphemous God that doesn't exist. Paul says the, the, an idol is nothing. There's no power in an idol. But what has captivated people in the idol is the demonic powers behind it. It's of the devil. Whose side are you on? And then Jesus goes on to say this sinful generation. And you know sin is the breaking of the law. That's how it's defined for us in Scripture. 
And it has to do with selfishly breaking the commandments. Jesus drove that to the heart. Uh, you know the famous examples that Jesus says uh, about being angry or about you know murdering. He says, no, that begins in the heart. If you hate someone maliciously, you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus drives it to the core and to the seat of our being. This is why we have to be unself, because we have all hated somebody. I can say that to you, beloved, without fear of contradiction from the Holy Spirit. You know it to be true. You know in the second table of the law that you are guilty when it's driven to your heart. And that's why you need the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. Because you are sinful. You are guilty. You're not okay. I'm not okay. That's the the brainwashed tyranny of the political correct culture. I'm okay, you're okay. Let's all speak in ambiguities here. I'm okay, you're okay. When Scripture says what? You're not okay. I'm not okay. I'm sinful. You're sinful. Identified by what God says. That's why I try to be careful when we're called to a time of confession and use Scripture I don't want your conscience to be bound with human rules. Made up, man-made rituals and attempts at manipulation and control which go on all the time in power struggles. And I try to be very careful to point you to Scripture to say, this is how God identifies sin. This is what you're to seek forgiveness for. This is what you're to identify. Not some made-up false guilt thing. Beloved, I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel redeemed and joyful and at peace and reconciliation with God. I want you to go out here this morning with the joy of the Spirit to go with you in peace and long-suffering and kindness and gentleness and all the contradictions to the world and its power game. But you don't have to be a part of that. Jesus again identifies Himself as the prophetic Son of Man. You can see... In verse 34, of those who are ashamed of the Son of Man, when He comes, He will be ashamed of them when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. So Jesus identifies Himself with the prophetic Son of Man. We learn this from progressive revelation of Scripture. This is how we know what that title, Son of Man, means. And so He returns in promised exaltation of God's glory with the commanding holy power of the holy angels. Boy, this is a fearful description. It's just given a glimpse of it here. But what is the contradiction currently that the world says? They don't see that Jesus is powerful. They don't see that Jesus is victorious. They don't see that Jesus is saving the world. They don't see that Jesus is God. Jesus is saying, it will be revealed to every person whoever lived. doesn't matter whether you can comprehend that or not. (laughs) It's what Jesus says is true. So what is the urgency over the gospel paradox in the sin-fallen world? Well, the sin-fallen world is a storm of conflicted contradictions, inciting hatred and violence, repeatedly pounding like angry waves against the shore of God-consciousness. In other words... You know this. The world is at war with God. They're at war with the idea of God. 
They're at war with the claims of God. They're at war with the claims of Jesus to be God. How can you say it any more plainly than that? The world is at war with God. And quite honestly, what Jesus is saying here is, whose side are you on? Are you siding with the world, scorning and scoffing and uh, writing me off as worthless? Or in faith, are you embracing what the world sees as a contradiction, but you know to be true? That Jesus is Savior and Lord, and there is no other one beside Him. He is the only Savior and Lord. Any other pretenders, by any other name, by any other description, by any other way, are false. And so, what the world sees in its desire for godlike power and control and says the gospel's a failure. This is what Scripture calls us to. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever's ashamed of me, will you be ashamed of me? Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And that's why we preach the gospel as a call to faith, to saving faith, because it is the power of God unto salvation. The Christian gospel is only good news if it's God's good news, which carries the soul beyond this life and beyond this world. And we need to be very careful, even of the misguided, no matter how sincere, of those who are trying to limit and to reinterpret the gospel in terms of this world. We live in this world. And in living in this world, we're to live as light and salt. Actually, Jesus gets into that in chapter 9 and elsewhere in Scripture. But that's the outworking. It's not the heart of what the gospel is. The way of the cross is the heart of the gospel. We have that presented to us in this Lord's Supper. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that this Lord's Supper is really picturing to us the way of the cross? Because the way of the cross brought Jesus in his body, in the incarnate human flesh. It brought him, his body, to die on the cross. And in dying on the cross, Jesus willingly gave his life blood. Blood. 